Show me the money. This is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast. Picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanika. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be a Better Investor podcast. It's a podcast where I pick the brains of the top investors in the country and uh, we try to understand how they approach investments, how do they pick winners and what do they do when they end up with a dog in their portfolio. And the idea is to find those golden nuggets from their perspectives and experiences uh, to assist amateur investors to become better investors. My guest today is Anthony Clark. He is an absolute legend in the South African small and mid-cap space and he's the man behind Small Talk Daily. He's also a regular commentator on various media platforms and he does research on many companies the big asset managers ignore. Anthony, thank you so much for joining me. Just tell us about Small Talk Daily. What is it all about and what do you actually achieve through it? It's uh, nice to uh, be back. A topic which has been very close to my heart for the best part of 40 years. I'm an engineer by training and entered the stock market very late in life for me, at about 26 years old after studying. And then I moved to this country when I was 29. And I'm probably one of the few analysts uh, on the JSE that has covered the same sector now for the best part of probably 26, 27 years. And that is an extreme rarity. Some say, well, why would you do that? Uh, The answer is quite simple. One, because I adore the sector. Secondly, as an engineer, I understand the companies, hopefully, that I'm analyzing. And thirdly, it's a space where there's very little competition. And if you spend the last 20 to 30 years building up relationships, networking, product files, understanding the businesses, you have an extreme advantage over anybody else wanting to come into your space. Because sadly, due to all of this uh, king code governance, et cetera, et cetera, legislation these days, it is extremely difficult for a young professional sell-side analyst to get the same access to management and information that, let's say, an old dinosaur like me would have. So this old dinosaur is sitting here with some great information from uh, contacts he's known for the best part of 20 to 30 years and carries on writing institutional quality research and occasionally sharing it with a wider public who has a first for investments into the small to mid-cap arena. And just as a context, when I arrived in the country in May 1996, the first three stocks that I picked up was Bola Metcalf at 32 cents, Cash Built at 3 Rand 53, and uh, I forget the price of Wilson Bailey, uh, the construction company. 27 years later, I'm still covering them. So it's all about consistency, legacy, and reputation. But you don't manage a fund or a fund attached nope. to Small Talk Daily. So how do you nope. make your money? I do not manage a fund deliberately so because the very nature of my work consistently has been impartiality. I'm sure you know, and many of your listeners, is that many of the analysts tied to the what I would call the bulge bracket brokers who are associated with international firms or domestic banks always have an angle. Do they only say nice things about companies because it's a banking relationship or a potential deal they want to do or a loan agreement behind the scenes? And I truly don't believe you get what I would call completely unfettered, honest opinion. I work for myself. I have no boss. So if a company doesn't like what I write about them and the complaints, it goes straight into the bin because I really don't care. My (laughs) job is to look after my institutional clients who have supported me through thick and thin 
for the best part of 25 to 30 years to give them the type of information which they regularly wouldn't find out for themselves. Because if you think of it logically, if you're a senior fund manager at one of the huge asset managers running a multi-billion rand fund, and you may have a small percentage stake in, let's pick a company, cash built, you are not going to dedicate your time or an analyst's time to knocking on the door, calling Werner de Jacha, getting an update, looking at what the competitors are doing, because your time is valuable. But someone like me, who's been covering cash bill for 26, 28 years, would have that information at my fingertips. So they'd give me a call, say, Anthony, give us a quick rundown on cash built, anything that we've missed, or you know, can we see your latest report? So I'm providing what I would call the time element in the institutional space where they simply do not have a time, capability, or capacity to cover the near 100 stocks that I look at in the small to mid-cap universe. Yeah, you're known for not pulling punches uh, in many circles. You also are not very popular because you are so outspoken. But uh, do you sell your research to the asset managers? It's on a bespoke basis. If I'm, if I'm asked to do something, I would look at it. My main source of modest income is writing. You know, I'm a regular contributor to a number of, uh, of publications, amongst other things. And that's where the bills sort of just get paid. But as us independents knows, including maybe yourself, it's uh, always a bit of a hand-to-mouth existence. When the end of the month comes and you have to scrabble around to pay the bills, it always seems to get done. I've been very fortunate to date that uh, many media publications uh, who have known my work are quite happy to have me on as a what I would call a quasi-freelance journalist. And that's what I call myself these days. But do you have a personal investment portfolio which you invest and use the, your own research to make investment decisions? The answer is yes and no. Again, it all comes down to reputation and, and impartiality. When I was trained in London many years ago in the early 90s, I was told by my boss, Anthony, the only thing that you have in life in this career is your reputation. Guard it jealously because once it's gone, you will never get it back. So my personal pension funds, as I often tweet, is managed by an independent financial advisor. Uh, they're former clients of mine based in Claremont. They have my retirement annuity. They have my preservation fund, amongst other things. And I can give them direction, saying, you know what, I really don't want to be in these bulge bracket stocks. I want to be in these areas. And they tailor things to my requirements. But I physically do not look after money myself. Because then the institutional clients would really wonder, well, if Clarky is really writing about Afrimat, is he writing about it because he owns it? Or is he writing about it because he wants to do something? When I write something, you can absolutely be assured I'm telling you what my current view is. There is no angle. There is no sideline. There is no kickback. There is no incentive because I'm not a bulge bracket broker. My job is to give, as I said, unfettered, ultimate independent advice. And I can tell you that my institutional support base appreciates that because in many cases, there's an angle. And the most important thing, if I can take a dig here at somebody, but not in an impolite way, I read a broker report this morning on a large poultry stock, which I've covered probably for the best part of 15 years. They're saying, oh, we're expecting some second half problems right now due to the high input costs of maize and soya and the difficulty to pass on these increases to a constrained consumer. And I thought to myself, hmm, so it's only taken you like nine months to work that out when I was writing about this in August, September last year. So the benefit of being a complete independent is you can run around, meet the executives, go to uh, as many meetings as possible, speak to people in the, in the industry that perhaps have no relation to the company which you're analyzing to get a 
holistic, balanced view. And you can come to market with information significantly faster. Where a friend of mine who works for a large bulge bracket broker, a U.S. one, they have to write the report. It then goes to New York for checking. Then it goes to London for legal. Then it comes mm. back to this country for editing. Then it has to be proofread and you know managed with a desktop publishing. A week or two later, the information gets published. By then, it is so out of date, who cares? My information, the second I write it and spell check it, there's always the odd grammatical error. I don't care. It goes out. So you are getting some of the fastest, best information in the small to mid-cap market currently available, I believe, in this country. Some people may say it would be better if you had skin in the game because then you use your own advice to invest. What is your response to not having skin in the game and the angle that people would say, listen, if he's not buying what he says you should buy, why should I? Oh, well, I didn't say I had skin in the game. I told you that my money is uh, administered by an independent financial advisor based in Claremont. And if I indicate to them that I'm very keen on something, and if they agree, they will happily put my own money in. And uh, that is the case. When I look at uh, my investment portfolio, which actually had a statement sent through to me overnight, I very rarely change anything. I've held some stocks for the best part of 10 or 15 years. And I'll give you one example. In fact, two examples. Many, many, many years ago, when I was working uh, at Board of Executives NetBank, there was a small private equity company out of a PSG stable called Paladin Capital. Few will remember it. They delisted it. And as part of that delisting, they unbundled then embryonic stake in Kuro Holdings, and they gave you the option to take cash or PSG shares before the unbundling of Capitec, et cetera, et cetera, at the equivalent of 33 rand. So I took my Kuro shares at the equivalent of one rand seventy-eight, and I took my PSG shares at a then equivalent of thirty-three rand. Now PSG before the Capitec unbundling hit three hundred rand. So I still have a PSG and I still have a Kuro, and that's fifteen years later. Invicta Holdings is a company that I've held for over ten years. Carp Agri, which I've been following for the best part of fifteen years, I first bought my stake in my pension fund at seven rand thirty. I still have it 15 years later. If that gives you a semblance of when I spot a great company and if I think the market is missing a trick here and the underlying management, I think, are sound and the industry that they play in, I believe, has a long-term future. Yes, there are swings and roundabouts and some bullets to dodge along the way. But the very essence of why I like that company, if it still remains in place, I will happily hold until the end of time. And I went on public record a little while ago. Mark Hassenfuss in the Financial Mail said, Carp Agri is the only stock he would ever buy in retail. To which I counted on my Twitter page, Carp Agri is the only stock that I would never sell in my portfolio. <laughs> if that gives you a semblance, uh, I only have probably 15 or 16 stocks. I'm going to have usually you know, a cadre of some offshore funds for exposure to the S&P 500, the FTSE, the Euro Index, etc., etc. But mostly a, a reasonable proportion of my Morris Little Pension Fund is invested in the, in the very universe which I cover. Because as you correctly say, if I'm not prepared to put my own money into a stock that I like, why the hell should I recommend it to you? Small and mid-cap stocks are interesting. And obviously this podcast is aimed at uh, amateur retail investors. And many people look at the small caps because, uh, number one, the share prices are normally low and you can get many shares with an investment. And people also think there's more upside 
four smaller stocks than the big established stocks. And many uh, analysts would also only look at the financials and maybe attend an investment conference or meeting with the board. But with small caps, you also see a lot of reaction and external developments can have a much more significant impact on the particular company. So how do you go about analyzing a company and picking, in quotation marks, the winners? That's a great question. And I've actually started doing it right now. I mentioned before we came on air, I've started to pick up coverage of two new companies. I'm an old fashioned analyst. I have an old PC here running Windows, which drives me insane. I've put my MacBook on ice because I couldn't take it anymore. (laughs) I work with enormous volumes of paper. I'm looking at uh, old fashioned filing cabinets here, piles of old business days. And manila files, those old-fashioned manila files, stuffed full of annual reports, press cuttings, handwritten notes, results presentations, sector comparatives, industry comparatives. And I build up these enormous files on any company that I look to cover. It then gives me a complete overview. So I haven't just gone in to meet the management and they've given me their story. It can sometimes take me over a year to feel comfortable enough to actually make a recommendation. And again, I always like to give real-world examples. Renogen. Renogen for the last year and a half has been one of the hottest stocks in the JSE. It is trading roughly now at about 40 rand in round numbers. When I first selected that stock at the beginning of 2021, it was trading at 12 to 13 rand. I'd actually been monitoring Renogen for years before that event, much to the uh, disgust of the uh, CEO, Steph Morani, who wanted me to cover the stock. And I flatly refused, not because I thought the company was bad or was uh, speculative, but it didn't meet the criteria at the time for me to put my reputational name to a physical recommendation. It was an exploration company looking for gas in the free state. There was a significant capital commitment. Would the, the commissioning of a plant actually occur? Would the capex go to time? You know, was the gaseous component actually of world-class standards? Did we see the competence person's report? You know, all the tick lists that you need for a company to suddenly go from being what I would call a development company to one going into commercial operation and actually physically making money. That's but it hasn't earned a, any revenue. Exactly. But it's all about investor sentiment because anyone can dig a hole in the ground and they may hope to strike riches. But if you do dig a hole in the ground and you actually strike riches and then that riches is confirmed by an independent, you know, recognized body, you can then start doing all the clever stuff that all the, the wonderful CFA and accountants do, the discounted cash flows, the long-term models, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and say, well, if they were to start digging this stuff out of the ground, or in Renogen's case, extracting the gas, and then converting it into liquid natural gas and helium, what would the potential revenue be on a certain production per day, per month, per year, less their costs? That point to me occurred November, December 2020, when I was looking at a combination of of things that I look at. It dawned on me that this company was moving from the exploration and speculative phase to the commerciality phase. Now, again, they haven't made any money. But what it does is it gives investors, particularly institutional investors, a sense of confidence of what they're investing in actually has a tangible physical future. It is no longer a hole in the ground. It is a hole in the ground that can actually make money. And I thought on that scenario alone, once that information started to filter out into the marketplace, the share price would start to react to what I would call the commerciality 
of a former speculative hole in the ground. From 13 rand to a high of 44 rand, we've now had the Central Energy Fund invest 10%. We've had one of the world's richest mining executives, Robert Friedman from Ivanhoe, put in $250 million. I'm sure there are more investments to come. And the second part of this transaction, which is the expansion of Virginia Phase 2, will cost between 12 to 13 billion rand, which is two and a half times current market cap, showing you that astute investors have suddenly decided to put their own money into this company. It's all about spotting things early and anticipating if this were to occur, would two plus two equals four in the minds of astute institutional investors? And that's the trick that I get up to. Do I try and spot things early? And the answer is I try my very best to spot things way before the crowd because by the time the story is literally in the press, the share price has run, it has run hard, and all the easy money has been made. I try and catch things in what I call the initial upwave. And, uh, you know, if someone like myself starts covering a stock and you then start writing about it and analyzing it, many of my clients say, well, hang on. He works for himself. He has no agenda. If he's covering the stock, why is he doing that? For what reason is Anthony suddenly covering this company? Because my time is inherently valuable. And then the question starts. So why are you looking at this company? What have you seen that we haven't seen? And then it starts developing a story and life of its own. And there's a classic example for you. Renogen was one of those. And I've got two others right now, completely ignored by the market, which I'm working on. But in plain sight, quite major companies in two industries, but they have even no coverage or maybe one analyst looks at the stock, you know, of modest consequence. Come on, name them, please. I can't do that. If I named that, then once again, I would blow my reputational cover and it would be grossly unfair. I've always been fair in what I do. Everybody gets the same information roughly at the same time. And I can't favor one over the other because then, again, my personal reputation and the integrity that I've built in the last 26, 28 years simply would be blown. And it's, it's just not worth it. It's, it's as simple as that. What is your hit rate? How many winners do you pick over losers? That's a very interesting question. I usually put out a top five list of stocks every year. I don't mean to use the foul acronym, but uh, I'm, I'm sure your editors will, uh, will find a suitable thing. I have to put my cock on the block every year. Because as you say, you know, what good is an analyst without actually having a recommendation list? So this year, the beginning of January, I have to look at my benchmark indices, which is the JSC 201 small cap, the JSC 202 mid cap, and of course, the J203 all share index. So I picked this year my five stocks, which for varying special situation reasons, I believed would outperform the general benchmarks. They were eMedia, which owns eTV, Invicta Holdings, which most people would know is a, a supplier of industrial bits and bobs and parts and widgets. Renogen, which I've mentioned before, the exploration gas company in the free state. Sabcap, which is the investment holding company run by the extremely astute investor Chris Seabrook. And the last company is where Platinum. Now, as I'm looking at the list right now, and I updated it just before we came on air, my top five as of right now is having a return before dividends of 16.48%. The JSE small cap as of right now is up 3.85%, and the mid cap is up 3.17%, and the all share as of right now is down half a percent. So I've smashed all my indices, and I'm still very happy to own those five counters because each were chosen for a specific reason, 
where I believe that better than expected corporate results, some form of corporate restructuring of a possibility of a buyout would occur during the course of the next 12 months, which would lead those basket of shares to outperform the index. And so far, I'm performing 500% better than the index. Do you short any shares? No. Firstly, I'm not that clever. And secondly, again, just for your listeners, I'll relay a story. I first started investing for myself when I was 13 years old. I was working as a stacker of shelves in the local co-op supermarket, earning £23 a week part-time working after school. And I loved the stock market. And back in the 80s, Margaret Thatcher, the Conservative government prime minister, was privatizing the state-owned companies, British Telecom, British Gas, British Petroleum, British Airways, etc., etc. And I thought to myself that British Airways, when it was listed, was looking far too high. So in the old London system, you could short a share on what was called the account system. If you sold a share on a Monday, you only had to close your position the following week Friday. So you basically had 10 working days to actually run a position, either a long or a short, before you had to settle your account and they would just pay you out the profit or you'd have to pay him a loss. So me being a clever 14, 15-year-old thought, I'm going to short British Airways on opening, which I did. And I went in with pretty much all of my savings. Over the preceding week or two, the share price ran. (laughs) I had to settle my account system at the end of the fortnight, and I was wiped out. And I vowed from that point I would never short a share again. And I'm now 55 in October. So 40 years later, I've never shorted a share. Sometimes have to learn from your mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. Retail investors or amateur investors, what advice would you have for them? Because obviously they can't go through this uh, analysis process you are going through. The answer is yes and no. I have luck on my side. I said I'm an engineer by training. Then I went back to Varsity to actually study company financial reporting and marketing. So that combined with you know a near 30-year history of covering companies in one sector gives me an advantage over, you know, the average man or woman in the street. But it's not to say that the average man or woman in the street does not have an advantage. They do. Because in today's modern society with the Internet, many of the same information tools that we as professional analysts have on on tap are available. You can go into any company's website and download histories of annual reports, results presentations, sends announcements, and that leads you to build up a picture of what is going on over the long term in a particular company that you want to follow. The press in this country are, are, are quite active, you know, the, the magazines that we know of, the newspapers. I'm a compulsive reader of Business Day, Financial Mail, Fin Week when it was around, and all the other little tidbits. And I cut those out and I keep them in a file because you want to be well informed. So I tell particularly young amateur investors who are looking to make a mark for themselves, pick a stock or an industry that you genuinely love. If you're a a lady that loves shopping, I'm saying, you know what, cover retail shares. If you're a guy that loves, you know, cars, I'm saying, you know what, pick the automotive sector or the logistics sector, because you will have an inherent interest in that sector that goes above and beyond you just looking at the company. There'll be a passion there, and it'll be that very passion for you to actually start looking and digging and reading and analyzing that'll give you hopefully some additional information above and beyond what the average man in the street will have, or perhaps in most cases, the average institution. So I tell people in the uh, webinars that I do, for particularly for young black investors who are the future of tomorrow, you have to start reading and reading consistently. 
and then remembering what you do and keeping files and detailed notes. And through that, it is laborious. You start building up an understanding of what is going on in the market. And um, the rest is history. Yeah, don't stand around a braai with a beer in your hand and then get a hot stock tip and act on that. Okay. You, you need to even, really even, do your research. Last question, how long do you hold shares? As I said to you earlier, depending on the nature of a company, indefinitely, as the special situation actually unfolds, if the takeover that I anticipate happens, if a corporate restructuring happens, like PSG, for example, is going through a corporate restructuring, then, of course, you naturally sell and move on to, on to the next stock. So in most cases, as Warren Buffett would say, you buy great companies and you hang on to them until something materially changes. Then you review it. That's how I work. Uh, stocks that I've owned for 20 years, I still own. But if something were to dramatically come along to change that view, I would have to reappraise. Anthony, thank you so much for your time today. That was Anthony Clark. He is the man behind Small Talk Daily, one of the uh, legendary small and bit cap analysts in the country. Show me the money. That was the Money Web, be a better investor podcast with Rake for Kneecap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the MoneyWeb podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.